Knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Like, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals, and I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And, you know, I was talking to somebody, Angela, just today, and I was talking about how you and I like to make sure the gospel is central to everything we talk about. And then I said, well, maybe not a lot this week, because we're going to be talking about finances. Woohoo! Money, money, money. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Maybe that should be our intro <laughs> intro this week. You know, we we are a theology podcast, but you would be surprised how often in the group there are questions about being wise with finances. We get questions about life insurance. We get questions about how do I teach my children to be wise with money, um, questions about investing, budgeting, and we... This is like Angela's area of expertise right here. So we got to take advantage <laughs> of it. And um, and I, I know a little bit on some of this, but she's definitely um, got the expertise. And so we thought, you know what? We should just do an episode on this since there's so many questions. This is part of, uh, I would say that I do think that scripture calls us to wisdom. And I think that we can use wise principles. I, I don't think that anything that we're going to say today necessarily is a black and white. You absolutely must have a budget. You absolutely yeah. must have life insurance or save for retirement. But what we are going to say is that there's wisdom in some of the things that we're going to talk mm-hmm. about. A lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to fall under the category of wise counsel, good advice. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, um, our listeners, you know, you need to talk through these things with your spouse. Um or, you know, if you're single, talk with someone um, who you think is a wise friend or, you know, do do as much reading and studying as you can to understand the topic and make a wise choice. But, um, you know, a lot of these issues are not right or wrong. So I think we're going to start with budgeting. I, I do want to say I know that among the people in our audience, we have people in all different Um, places financially. Some people are in debt. Some people are living paycheck to paycheck. Some people are making more money. And there's going to be something for all of you because we are going to be talking about investing and saving for retirement. And Angela has so many great things to say about that. So even if you're thinking, but I live by a budget, but I do all these things. If you're just somebody that's thinking, how do I start saving for retirement? You know, definitely keep listening because there's going to be something for everyone, regardless of where you're at. And I know we have a lot of young listeners and a lot of young married. And I know that I even 
get messages from gals, you know, we're really struggling financially and maybe we haven't made the best decisions. But I first just want to talk about budgeting. I think especially if if you're somebody that, you know, Angela, I know that you used to use a budget and you don't now. So maybe you can talk about that because I think there's people that are going to be more like you. Yeah. Um, you know, when my husband and I were first married, um, we were pretty hardcore with our budget. Um, we used some budgeting software um, that I think would be equivalent to like Quicken now. Um, a lot of my friends who I know who um, love budgeting software, um, like one called You Need a Budget. And, you know, there are lots of different budgeting apps out there. Um that are free and then some that cost a little bit. I do uh, know that you need a budget cost a little bit, but everyone that I've talked to says that it's absolutely worth it. And so uh, uh, let me just talk a little bit about the fact that um, we used to be on a very, very strict budget and now we're much more loosey-goosey at my house than we used to be. What I would say about that is, you know, there's a saying, begin as you mean to go on, and that really kind of goes for a lot of areas of life, but um, in fi- in your financial decision making, boy, that sure is um, a great bit of advice. And when you first get married, is the opportune time to start making choices together, make decisions together. You come in with the, you know, you bring ideas to the table on how things are going to be, but you need to talk through those things, work together on coming up with what your budget is, and then make strides to live by it. And so my husband and I did that together. Um, We had a budget for pretty much every single category you could think of. Um, And we evaluated every month, how are we doing? I, you know, my, my undergraduate degree is in finance. And so, you know, I love financial graphs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, of course, this is one of the wonderful things about software. You can see all the financial graphs, but Um, I used to every single day input every single receipt that we had um, down to a very fine level of granularity. And when you live like that for a while, um, what it starts to do for you is it builds habits. And if you continue to live by that budget, you know, as you um, start earning more, as you receive raises or promotions or uh, switch jobs to a higher paying job, you know, if you can continue to live on that budget, don't don't immediately suck in all of that new income, um, but continue to live frugally on your budget. Over time, you get to a point where you really do have a lot of breathing room. And guess what? Your habits are already established and you can start to find that maybe you don't have to put in absolutely every single receipt every single day. And, you know, so my husband and I are going to um, celebrate our 18th wedding anniversary coming up soon. And so, you know, 18 years later, we don't budget to that level anymore because the habits are established and we are solidly living within our means. And that really is the goal. So we have been married almost 24 years and we do use a budget. And I am or my husband, my husband tried out all several different budgeting softwares. This is several years ago. And he liked YNAB, which is the one Angela referenced. You need a budget. And we love it. 
We each have a YNAB app on our phone and it's connected to our bank account. So I don't have to go in and manually input every receipt. But if I go to Starbucks and it costs me $4, that's probably a cheap Starbucks, but I, um, <laughs> and then it comes up, I then have to put it into a category. And I want to talk to those who are not budgeting and maybe realizing that I know that there's people out there that say we just don't even make enough money to budget. Well, your money's going somewhere. So mm-hmm. you, you do. A- every person can be on a budget. And if, you know, different, when you get married, you realize that sometimes you have different spending personalities. Uh, I think my husband and I are fairly similar. But mm-hmm. sometimes you have someone who is a penny pincher with someone who's a spender. And so some of those things are good to work through. I do encourage working on the budget together. And Make sure that you put a category for everything you're ever going to do. So, for instance, um, now most of our boys buy their own clothes, but we have a clothing category because guess what? Clothes and shoes and underwear and all of those things will need to be bought in every year. And so we might say, you know, $75 a month. We might not buy clothes every month, but that builds up. So when it's springtime and the boys need a new clothes, we have enough money in that category to get them all new shoes, to get them um, all new shorts and t-shirts and whatnot. And sometimes, you know, you'll be off. Sometimes you'll be off. And sometimes we've got to say, okay, we've got a little extra in this category over here. So we're going to transfer it into clothing because we're going to spend a little more this month than we had saved up. And that's okay, too. I'll tell you, we even save for Christmas every year. So we have an amount that is our amount that we spend on Christmas every year. And within the you need a budget. It tells us how much we have to put into that that category every month. And by the by December, we have our Christmas budget. And I love doing it that way because before we would save for Christmas, we would get to Christmas and think, oh, we need money for Christmas, you know. And we save for big things. We save for vacations. We save for home repairs. And so we're able to have categories where we save up for those things. Um, even car repairs or buying a new car. Um, I will say that my husband and I did do the Dave Ramsey program years ago, and we pay cash for our cars. And I know that seems like a scary thought for a lot of people, but if you're paying $300 a month for a car payment right now, just imagine if you were to put three to $100 a month into a category every month, you're going to have enough for a car mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at some point. And so, and we don't buy brand new cars. That doesn't mean we buy super old cars always. Sometimes we do, like the car that we bought for our kids to drive. But, you know, we've paid cash for our motorhome and cash for, um, you know, different things. And it's not because we're just making tons and tons of money. My husband does make a good living, but it's because we've planned and saved for that. And I've spoken with people. I know somebody actually that they got a nice raise, a really substantial raise, but, and they changed their spending without thinking about it and they had nothing to show for it. Mm. And you don't want that either. Yeah. When my husband got a substantial raise, I guess about eight years ago, uh, we didn't really change our spending. Yeah. You know, and what we did is we tried to save more. And so these are things I will say, have wisdom in your spending. Sometimes you might think to yourself, if you're not, if you haven't been budgeting and you're living paycheck to paycheck, you might think, where is all my money going? Well, go and look. You might be, um, goodness, how many times am I eating out at work? Mm. Um, and how much is that a month? 
wow, that adds up to 250 a month or something like that. And and at least you want to know where your money is going. All of that money that's coming into your account, one of you is working for that. Absolutely. You know, that's your time. You know, and I will say too, if you don't already have a budget, um, keeping a journal of, you know, just starting to track what you're spending is a great place to start. Do that maybe for a month or two. And then you've got a great idea of this is how much we're spending in each category. And it it can also help you um, sort of uh, identify what your categories are. You can also very easily find, of course, it's uh, already in a lot of the software or you can find online examples of budget categories. But, um, you know, I just want to reiterate that the goal is um, good habits, good, wise financial choices and living within your means. And then after you've done that for some time, um, you've got your routine established. And then depending, you know, every couple is different. You can decide that we love keeping um, the detail forever. You can make it to 24 years um, like Colleen and her husband and and still have a budget because that's how you two have decided and that's what you want to do. You can lighten up. There's, there's really no rules here. It's up to you um, and your family how you do it. But the goal is to live within your means and um, have those good, wise financial habits. You know, I, I heard something once that uh, a lot of young people now think that they need to buy a house equal to their parents. And I know mm. we're going to get into, into not buying too much house in a little bit. But I think that sometimes our expectations are unrealistic. Um and I think you nailed it there with live within your means and and consider everything too. Like my husband and I each have uh, there's there's in our budget a Brenton category and a Colleen category. Mm-hmm. So within that category, if I want to go out to lunch with a friend, if I want to uh, buy a book or a Starbucks or anything, I have money to do that. And so if you are you know, if you do have some kind of blow money that you're already spending, put that in your budget. So we're going to talk about um, about getting out of debt. And I'm going to let Angela talk about that. But I wanted to I wanted to offer some hope to those of you that are in debt. And I'm going to be really transparent here. We had a lot of debt, um, primarily medical debt. And I just and af- this was back in. um like 2001, 2002. And after 9-11, since my husband works for United Airlines, he had to take a sizable uh, pay cut. Uh, Everyone across the board in the company did. And it was a big pay cut. And I thought even more, how are we going to become debt-free? And we worked really hard and we did it. And even while we were in that time of making a little bit less money and if, and sometimes living on one income, depending on what that income is, can be difficult. But Angela, I want you to really give some kind of tips and the best way for people to go about getting out of debt. Well, certainly if you um, are in debt and you would like to get out, of course, we've already talked about getting on a budget. I, you must be on a budget to be working on getting out of debt and you need to know where all that um, extra money is going because if your goal is to get out of debt, then you want as much of your extra money as possible to be going towards that goal. So, assuming you've got a budget and you have now determined, you know, we've got this five hundred dollars extra per month um, that we want to put towards getting out of debt. Um, the first thing that you want to do is pay off your highest interest debt first. Um, what that means is 
you know, if you've got student loans and you've got credit card debts, um, my advice is pay the credit card debts off first because their interest rate is higher. Therefore, borrowing that money is costing you more every month than the lower interest debt. Um, I would almost always recommend putting it towards mortgage last before any other debts. Um, When it comes to things like credit cards, certainly credit cards, pay more than the minimum. Always, always, always. And my true advice on credit cards is if you aren't carrying a balance on your credit card, don't ever start. Don't ever start carrying a balance on your credit card if you can avoid it. And so, you know, my family, we do have a couple of credit cards, and we have always from day one had the rule that we never, ever, ever carry a balance. And so the reason why we keep the credit cards is so that we can, you know, receive um, cash back rewards, miles, those sorts of things. Um, But we always, always pay it off every month. Now, I know that right now we're talking to folks who have debt and they are trying to get out. So it's very likely that credit card debt is involved. And so my advice here is that you need to understand that if you only ever pay the minimum, you will be paying on that debt forever and ever and ever. So you need to for sure pay more than the minimum and then really pay as much as you can afford to pay every month towards that high interest credit card debt. Credit card debt is is the first one that you want to see go. Um, if you have debt um, that is like an auto loan, that would probably be my second uh, second one that I would advise paying off. Um, then maybe student debt um, and then mortgage, I would say, would be last. You know, one thing, if you're somebody that says we just really don't, you know, we don't have any debt and we really don't have a lot of extra to put into mortgage, I'll recommend something that, that we did early on is um, we, with our mortgage company, we were able to set up a biweekly mortgage payment. And what that did was pay one extra payment a year. So maybe that's not a lot, but an extra payment a year on your mortgage is at least something. Absolutely. And you can even do that, you know, if you can't, you know, a lot of a lot of things when it comes to being um, smart with money stuff just is cute little tricks like that. And I would say, you know, you, if if it's hard for you to come up with an extra thousand um, dollar payment one time per year, well, break it up. Pay an extra hundred dollars a month throughout the year. Um, and so I'll give you a, a little bit of info on how a mortgage works. When you pay extra, every time you pay extra and you are ahead on your mortgage payment, um, you have paid towards principal and you have automatically um, impacted the amount of interest that you will owe for the life of the loan, assuming you carry the loan to term. So as much as you can pay extra to your mortgage, absolutely do that because it is saving you money. And again, my advice there is to do that last after you've paid off your other debts. And the reason why is because your mortgage um, is secured by the asset, your house. That that mortgage is working for you to pay for an asset. And that's very, very different than, say, credit card debt, where what you're paying off is dinners that you ate a year ago. Um, the, you're still living in your home. Um, it's an asset that appreciates in, in most areas of the country. And so under normal circumstances, I would put your mortgage last. But once you are in a world where your mortgage is the last thing going on, or maybe it's your mortgage and one other thing that you're working on, 
Um, the faster you can pay your payment, if you can pay every payment just a little bit early, that impacts it. Um, just a little bit extra every month, that impacts it. An extra payment once a year, that impacts it. And, um, you know, you can easily find mortgage calculators online that will give you the math behind all of these things. But uh, what I would say about the mortgage is it's such a long term. In most cases, most of us have a 15-year or a 30-year loan. Um, it's so long that every little bit adds up over time, and it really can add up to a lot of money saved if you will do those little bitty things. And I would also say, if you can afford more than a 30-year mortgage, it's worth looking into a 15-year mortgage, because mm-hmm. it's not going to be twice as much as your 30-year mortgage. Mm-hmm. It it maybe will only add a few hundred dollars a month, and so that's often a good option, too. Let me give you, um, I'm going to call this advanced placement for... <laughs> Let me give you an advanced tip on the mortgage as far as 15-year versus 30-year. Um, this is what my husband and I have done. Um, uh, you can, when you are financing or refinancing, take a look at the rate you can get it for a 15-year, the rate you can get for a 30-year. And usually um, you can, if you are willing to afford the 15-year payment, do the math on how the 30-year mortgage works out if you commit yourself to always make the 15-year payment. And sometimes you can get ahead that way. And then what you've done is instead of locking yourself into a higher payment for that 15-year mortgage, you've given yourself now the leeway. What if somebody loses their job? What if we have some unexpected medical expenses? Now I'm not locked in to a $1,500 a month payment. Instead, I've got $600 a month. But I can always choose and make myself do $1,500 a month because I did the math and figured out, yeah, I'm capable of doing this. Um, and so that is actually what we've done at our house. Um, and then, of course, last thing I'll say about mortgages, when you go um, to buy a house, as much as you can afford to put down, this is also going to save you a lot of money. I know I just said last thing I'm going to say about mortgages, but let's talk a little bit about buying homes. Um, I know that we have a lot of friends in our Theology Gals group who are um, very young and married couples, and maybe they're thinking about buying that first home. And uh, my advice is to start with your budget. How much can you afford to pay Um for where you live. And I will say that this is a very, very big choice that can impact your financial future long term, is that if you choose to live somewhere very expensive, and you choose to live in a very expensive house, um, you are putting a lot of your money towards that. It's a long term commitment. So be wise about what kind of living situation you choose. Um, maybe not a brand new house. Maybe um, you can have different choices about what area of town. This is all, of course, up to you, and it's up to your preferences. But I know that this is something that younger couples now are going through in a way that maybe is different from Colleen, you and I, when we were younger and first married. There is a lot of pressure to create a married life right off the bat that looks like it's at the same level that your parents are living. And um, I will just say that was not reality for my husband and me. When we were first married, we lived in an apartment for a while. Then we um, lived in a little starter home um, that was inexpensive. And um, yeah, our life did not look like my parents' life. Um, A few years after that, we built a home um, and... 
when we first moved into that home, I would say 80% of it was just empty rooms with absolutely nothing in them because we made the decision, you know, we're not going to buy things um, to fill up this house and make it look um, complete immediately. We will buy things as we have the money, as we save up, as we can afford to buy quality things. But um, we were not starting from the point of view that this has to all look finished. You know, it takes time to build a marriage. It takes time to build a home. And that is very true financially as well. And there is no, there's really no reason why your um, financial situation, your home, every bit of it has to look complete and finished and magazine ready on day one. That is just unrealistic pressure. Yeah, when we bought our first house in 1990, let's see, eight, 1998. <laughs> so we bought our first house and it was a little two bedroom house. It, it was a nice size and it did have a full basement with it too. And we it had been repossessed, although the bank had These people had trashed the house and the bank had come in and painted it all white and put new carpet in, but there was still things that needed to be done and the yard was just completely destroyed. And so we moved in and we fixed up the house and fixed up the yard. And four years later, we made $58,000 when we sold that house. And then we were able to buy something a little bigger and put that money down on the new house. But I wanted to say something about affording too much house. We went to go buy our second house and I talked to a lender and she said, okay, well, you're approved for $300,000. And I said, no, we aren't. Mm. I said, we do not, we can't afford that. And I said, this is how much that we are okay with. And so do that too. And we actually asked them to write the, write the letter of what we had, what they had um, qualified us for, for the amount we said, because we also didn't want to be tempted to spend more than we already knew we could afford on a mortgage payment each month. Absolutely. That is really fantastic and wise advice. I would say almost universally so when you go to the bank and ask, how much am I approved for? The answer is always going to be more than you should probably take out for a loan for a home. So um, they, they will more than likely approve you for more than you should be affording. So you really need to work out the math in your budget beforehand and make a decision together. This is how much we can afford on a payment. And I will say, um, you know, different experts use different ballparks. Some some experts will say you shouldn't spend more than 50% of your income on housing. Some will say you shouldn't spend more than 30%. I would say, yeah, maybe somewhere in that range. It's, it's almost always going to be the most expensive part of your budget. And you just need to make a decision together on what you're comfortable with. And keep in mind that it's a long-term commitment. Um, And then stick to that. And just like Colleen said, just because the bank said this is what you're approved for, that is entirely different than what you and your family decide that you can afford. So I appreciated when you said start with your budget. So we want to talk about savings a little bit. And I strongly encourage having an emergency fund. I guarantee that things are going to happen. Um, your child is going to have to go to the hospital and your husband's going to have to take a, a day off work or you're going to need new tires or, you know, any number of something's going to happen. Your your furnace is going to go out. And it's better to have money put aside for those emergencies than to grab the credit card, which you know you're not going to be able to pay off. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, early on in our marriage, we decided how many months worth of salary we felt comfortable having in the bank. So we made that a goal to start working on saving until we had that amount um, saved in the bank. And again, experts vary on this. Some say three months salary, some say seven um, I would say decide together what you're comfortable with, but this ought to be a goal to have a certain amount in the bank that's left there um, for emergencies, for rainy day. As you have enough saved, this is this approaches something called uh, being self-insured. You know, you don't have to worry about, oh, buying vacation ex- insurance, for example, because, oh, no, um, a tornado came through and now I can't go on vacation. You have enough saved that you can take that risk and you can absorb it yourself because you've got your rainy day fund saved. And yes, it's irritating, but um, it helps uh, – build that level of security and comfortability to have um, a few months set aside so that if someone loses their job um, or something catastrophic happens, you are not paycheck to paycheck and your last $10, uh-oh, now what do I do? Uh, you know, my family is in the hospital and we don't have an income. So that's the goal with um, short-term savings. And what I mean by short-term is this is directly in your bank account easily converted to cash right away. Um, And so uh, sometimes we would consider um, CDs, um, uh, we would consider that to also be short-term. But just keep in mind, as you invest in things like that, and we're going to talk about investing coming up shortly, but as you put money into those things, um, how easily available it is to be converted into cash is what we call liquidity. So a CD is a little less liquid. Usually you have to wait for it to mature to get your money back. That's a little bit different than just your bank account. You can show up on demand and take the money out. And so when I'm talking about this rainy day um, savings, I'm talking about it being right there in your savings account. You can get it out today if you need it. And I'll I'll even share a real-life situation. Um, recently they... They recommended a treatment for me that would not be covered by insurance. And uh, they said, well, you can either pay monthly or you can pay in one lump sum. And if you pay in one lump sum, it'll save you 15%, which off of thousands of dollars, that's a, a significant amount of money. And we were able to, because we have that money in savings, able to write a check for it. And you just never know when those things are going to come up. And if you can't save you know, six months worth, you at least need to start with a couple thousand, you know, in the bank right now, even if you're, you're working on paying up debt and, and whatnot. And I would also say, I already said earlier on budget that save for things like Christmas and vacations and home improvements and cars. And, and if you're feeling a little bit discouraged right now, you're thinking we're only living month to month and I don't know how we're going to do that. I do want you to know we were those people years ago mm-hmm. and we were able to get into a better situation. Most likely um, there will be raises in your future with a job and different things like that. But it's good to make, to have good habits right now. And, and it is possible, even if you're not making a large income right now, to at least start implementing some wise um, habits and, and ways that you deal with your money. So now we're going to talk about investing. And I'm going to let Angela do this because she's the expert here. <laughs> um, I do. Uh, I love investing. And um, like I said earlier, I my undergraduate degree is in finance. And so um, I have some expertise in portfolio management. 
Um, so I'm going to start talking about investing. We're going to start with types of investments and just go through those very, very briefly before we talk about why we invest and the basics of it. Um, the types of investments, um, the first type I'll talk about is debt. And a great example of debt would be bonds. Um, this is literally where someone else is borrowing your money and there's an interest rate on the bond. Um, you, you're buying the bond, so you give them your money. And then when the bond is matured, they give you your money back with a little extra, and that's the interest. And that, that is a very simple explanation of what a bond is. Um, you, the United States government issues bonds. That's how the U.S. government's debt is, uh, is out there in the world. Um, so that is generally considered a very, very safe investment, and it's usually um, sort of a benchmark for all other bonds is um, treasury bonds. Um, but there are lots and lots and lots of bonds, corporate bonds, municipal bonds, really any lar larger entity, a business or a city or a state or you know a country can borrow money, and it's going to come in the form of a bond. Um, and so... Bonds are generally considered a little bit um, less risky. This is just as an asset class, less risky than um, equity. Um, and so let's talk about equity. Equity is another word for ownership. And the number one example of that would be stocks. Every, I, I assume probably everyone is familiar with the stock market. And when you buy a stock, what you are actually doing is buying a small slice of ownership in a company. And so if you go out and buy a share of AT&T, you now own a tiny little slice of the AT&T company. And that is why it's called equity. It's ownership. And so equity as a general asset class is considered a little bit more risky than debt or bonds. Um, and then, you know, somewhere in the middle, we've got real estate. Um, that is an investment, real estate. Uh, and let's think about this. Real estate is an investment class, it's an asset class, and that doesn't change just because you are not a landlord or, you know, you don't own um, 15 houses in an apartment building. If all you own is your own house, that's real estate and it's part of your portfolio. And the reason why it's an investment is because it appreciates, it doesn't depreciate. Now, I'm sure we have some listeners that probably do own rental property, and then you may be thinking, okay, it does depreciate on your taxes and that sort of thing. But as an asset class, generally, it goes up in value, and that's what we mean by appreciate. Um, and so that's, that is what makes it an investment. This is very different than, saying, than thinking of, for example, buying a car and saying that it's an investment. It is not an investment. A car almost always is not going to appreciate in value. It's going to depreciate. It's going to go down in value. So that's not an investment. Um, and so my point with real estate is, um, I will just give you uh, just a statistical tip. Um, over the lifetime of um, the stock market, if you take um, the, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk later about risk in the market and return in the market, but some of the way that we calculate in finance the worthiness of investments is taking a look at how portfolios perform when those investments are involved. And so statistically speaking, almost always portfolios that contain real estate outperform those that don't. Um, and this is historically speaking over the life of the market. So 
that is a fancy way of saying that it's great to have real estate in your portfolio. A way that you have it in your portfolio is owning your home. But let's say you live in an apartment and you can't own your home. And you still have a 401k at work. Very often, you may have available to you investment choices that do involve real estate indirectly. And um, so that sort of brings me to my last um, asset class. And this is, um, I'm calling it derivative investments because there's a whole uh, lot of different types. Most people have probably heard of options, hedges. There are other very, very complex types of um, investments that are called derivatives. It is an asset whose worth is derived from something else that has intrinsic worth. Um, so an option, for example, its worth is derived from the intrinsic worth in a particular stock. And all I really want to say for this um, podcast about derivative investments is that the average person doesn't really need to be involved with them. Um, they are very complex. They are very highly risky. You can lose a lot of money. You can also make a lot of money. But um, usually you really need to have some expertise and understand what you're doing to get involved in options, hedges, those sorts of things. Um, and so that would not be for the average investor. The average investor is going to be concerned with real estate, debt, and equity. Um Colleen, is there anything you want to add into that before we talk about why we invest? Or did you have any questions? No, I think I think that was a good, and I think you addressed that very well. Awesome. Well, let's talk about why we invest. Um, this is at the just very basic finance level. The reason why we invest is because of something called inflation. And what inflation is, is the general principle that the cost of a basket of goods goes up over time. In a healthy economy, this is what's going on. And um, a lot of our, I know not all of our listeners live in the United States, but a lot of our listeners do. And um, regardless of your politics, comparatively speaking, we do have a healthy economy in the United States. And so what that means is our inflation is positive. It means from year to year, the same basket of goods will cost a little bit more month by month by month, year to year to year. And what that means over time is that what a single dollar can buy goes down. Um, You'll hear, hear this referred to as purchasing power. So it means that one year from now, if I hold on to that same dollar in my hand, I can buy a little less than I could right now. And so now if I'm taking that concept and stretching it just a little further, what it means is without anything else helping us out, the value of a dollar goes down and down and down and down. And so the reason why we invest is to allow our money to grow in value so that we don't lose money by just having it sit there and decrease in value simply because of inflation. Now, that is a basic finance reason for investment. Um, Personal finance reasons for investment are most of us are looking forward to a retirement. Most of us are planning for a day when it may be more difficult for us to work, um, when we need care in old age. And investing is a way that we can have money set aside long-term to take care of our needs when we are older. And what we are doing when we invest long-term 
to think about retirement is that we are harnessing something called the time value of money. And if you think about that inflation that I talked about being negative and it chips away at the value of a dollar, if you take it and turn it around the opposite way and say, over time, what if we could make it go up and up and up? Well, as the length of time increases, the amount that it goes up, it grows astronomically. It's it's actually exponential. So the longer the amount of time that you have, the more you can expect to have at the end of that period of time. And so this is why we invest, because we've got a long time to retirement, assuming we start at the beginning when we're young, when we first start working. And if we start investing now, we will be able to have money at the end when we're ready for retirement to take care of our needs. Um, And so right here, I want to talk about um, the stock market, because a lot of us, if we are investing for retirement, our money is going to be in the stock market. And I know that that is scary um, for a lot of people. It feels very, very risky. Um, So what I want to tell you to um, help calm down and allay those fears about um, investing in the stock market is that the lifetime average return annually on the stock market, and when I say lifetime, I mean from the inception of the stock market in the United States. Even even through the Depression. That's right. This includes the Great Crash, the, the Great Depression. There was a, um, a pretty bad crash in uh, the late 80s. It includes all of that. Average is about 10% annually. So what I am doing by telling you this statistic is to let you know, first of all, investing in the stock market for most people, for the average folks like me and you, we need to think long term. We're not thinking, we're not day traders. That's not how we get our retirement. We think I'm going to purchase this stock and hold it for a long time because, and I'm not going to sell it tomorrow. If I wanted it today, I still want it tomorrow because the reason I'm buying it is because I believe it's going to go up in value over time. Um, so if I buy and hold for the most part, um, and we're going to talk about diversification and getting all of that risk out, but for the most part, if I've got a diversified portfolio, I buy and hold, um, I, there is, um, I want to think about how I characterize this, um, it is far less risky than I think the average person may fear, um, because you're holding for a long time, you may have many years that are better than 10. You may have some years that are negative, that are worse than 10. Um, but over time, you're going to average out. And remember, our goal was to beat inflation. Um, in the stock market, our goal with a portfolio is to do better than the average portfolio in the market. Over time, we're going to be able to do that. Um, because we're banking on the stability of the market as a whole. So some investing basics when it comes to stock market, 401ks, investing for retirement. These are my best tips. I, um, I tell everyone that I know, start as early as you can. As soon as you are earning um, at a job that offers a retirement fund, absolutely opt in. Um, it may seem on day one like, man, I just can't afford to put any money into this 401k. Make the choice. You will never miss it. You won't miss that extra 50 bucks a month. But when you get to retirement age and you're short a million, <laughs> you will miss it. <laughs> and right. a, lot of, a lot of companies will also match up to a certain percentage. That's exactly right. And I always tell people, you absolutely put in 
as much as you need to put in to get every dollar that they match. Max it out. Um, And so I believe, I want to say that the max per year to contribute to a 401k is around $22,000. It may be $22,500. My advice is if you can max that out, max it out every single year. Put in as much as you possibly can, but especially when you're young, because the, the sooner you start, the more years that money has to have that 10% per year. And it's a doubling function. It's exponential. So the more you start when you're young, the better off you are as you age. Um, Okay, so let's just talk very briefly about diversification because uh, this is another way um, to help ourselves be a little less afraid of investing in the stock market. When you are investing in a 401k, um, and I realize, you know, we probably have a lot of listeners who um, are government employees, whether that be uh, federal government, state, or local governments. And you may not have a 401k, but you probably have something that's similar, that just has a slightly different name, but that works works the same way. So we're talking about your um, retirement account through your job that allows you to contribute prior to taxes. Um, usually in these... Um, in these type of retirement accounts, you will have a few choices on what you can invest in. And this is actually one of the helpful things, I think, about a 401k, um, is that they may have a list of 20 different um, mutual funds that you can invest in. And so I'll explain just briefly how a mutual fund is different than a stock. A stock is when you buy a slice of ownership in a single company. A mutual fund is a ready-made portfolio where someone, um, and really it's a group of someones who it's their whole job, to do math and figure out a bunch of different companies all together to build a portfolio that they believe is going to outperform its benchmark. And so they've already done all the work for you of diversifying. Now, um, I've, I know I've given a lot of statistics. If you love, love, love investing and reading about companies and you want to make choices on companies yourself, normally you're not going to have that option in a 401k. It's almost always going to be already pre-diversified into um, mutual funds. But let's just say that you have an account over to the side that you um, want to invest in individual stocks. Statistically speaking, you need 40 individual stocks to have diversified out all of the diversifiable risk. And let me tell you what diversifiable risk is. Um, When you buy an individual stock, there is always the risk that that company is going to go out of business. And then guess what? You lost your money. Your stock is worthless. Um, When you when you own um, at least 40 different stocks, you have now spread it out among enough that you have diversified out the risk of ruining your portfolio because it was all in one thing. So um, without going very much deeper on the math on that, your goal is to own um, at least 40 individual stocks if you're going to go that way. Um, I do not suggest that you build your entire retirement around individual stock investing. I highly suggest mutual funds. And you know, this is why 401ks and the other type of accounts, typically it is restricted to mutual funds. 
Yeah, and I would actually add, you know, my mother-in-law worked for um, a very well-known company, and the company was doing well, and she put a lot of her retirement into that company, mm-hmm. and the stock even doubled and tripled, and so it was doing very, very well, but then it went down, mm-hmm. and she lost so much money. And so even if you think that a company is doing very, very well, you saw this recently with Bitcoin, where Bitcoin was going up and a lot of people were investing in it, but then people lost money. So you you want to you diversify, even if you think, oh, these are, you know, Microsoft is always going to do well, or Apple's always going to do well. It's so important to diversify. And I'm with Angela. We have most of our money in, in uh, mutual funds. Absolutely. And I'll add as well um, that it's a good idea to diversify across asset type as well. This is um, some pretty standard investing advice for um, retirement accounts is that when you're younger, you can invest in mutual funds that are almost all um, equity based. That means they're all owning stock. And you can invest in things that are a little bit more risky. For example, maybe it's mostly international um, startup companies. So in general, we have a rule in finance, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. Well, um, that sounds wonderful, except that um, if that risk hits, then it's it's also, it goes the other way. It's a very big loss. Um, and so as you reduce risk, maybe your potential reward is less, but your potential loss is less as well. And so... Um, you know, going back to our asset classes, equities are are the highest, and bonds are generally less risky as an asset class. And then there's um, at at the very bottom in terms of risk, we've got what we call cash equivalents, and that would be like a fancy bank account. And usually, most four hundred one ks and retirement accounts do have an option that is something like a cash equivalent. It's just going to help you just stay right even with inflation. And so um, typical investing advice for retirement accounts is that when you're younger and you have got a lot of years left in the workforce and you can absorb risk, you should be in the riskier things, at least some part of your portfolio, in order to get some of those rewards. The closer and closer you get to retirement age, the more you want to take it out of risky equities and the more you want to take it out of equities in general and move more towards bonds and more towards cash equivalents because you really want to protect the principal, protect the whole amount that's there. You certainly don't want to lose half your retirement account two years before you are hoping to retire. Um, And the last thing that I want to say about investing basics is that, um, you know, I love investing. That's what my uh, degree is in. But um, I am not certified to give you personal advice on how to do your investing. Um, This is all general advice and uh, general opinion. My best advice for you is as your nest egg gets built and you really start having um, an amount of money that it's, it's worth something, um, go see a certified financial planner. Um, those people can take a look directly at what it is that you have. They can give you targeted advice. Um, they can help you make decisions that are really going to maximize what you have. And those people are certified. Um, they have to have a certain amount of education in all of these types of assets, and, and um, they can really help you make better decisions. 
Yeah, I want to second that because I know some people, maybe this is new to you. And so you're overwhelmed with thinking about all of this. Um, We have an investment advisor that helps us choose the right investments. And you can also go to um, a financial counselor. So those are good options. If you're thinking, I'm lost, I don't know what to do. um, I would definitely look into that. Can you speak quickly to Roth IRAs? Right. So the difference between a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA is essentially going to be when you pay your taxes. So if you are making contributions with pre-tax dollars, then you are going to pay your taxes later when you withdraw. If you are making contributions with post-tax dollars, um, then you are not going to pay taxes when you withdraw. You have already paid them at the beginning. And so the thought process behind these these two different styles is you really need to give some strategy and thinking towards when are you going to have the, the higher income, now or at retirement? And that answer really can be different for different people. Typically, your income is less in retirement than when you are earning. And so what that means is that your tax bracket should be lower in retirement, which means you might like to defer paying those taxes until later. I want to talk about life insurance. We actually had a question in the group once, and I think there's maybe just some people that are in maybe um, some certain Christian groups that are very small (laughs) that I suppose have said, oh, it's not trusting God to get life insurance. And and that's just silly and foolish. Mm. I mean, that's just silly. I want to tell you, especially if you have children, but, but even if you're married and you you need to have life insurance. Um, for us, my husband is the one that brings in the income. And so we have enough life insurance that if he dies, I am able to live off the interest of that amount. And usually about you want about 10 times um, your salary. Is that what you would say, Angela? Yeah, I would agree with that advice. And the one last thing that I would add on life insurance is that almost always whole life insurance is not a good deal. I would t- I would give the advice to um, yep. to um, choose term life insurance rather than whole life. And the difference is just that whole life insurance has a savings component to it. So it's got a part of it that is like a savings account. And um, the very basic reason why this is not a good idea is because um, it's it's a financial instrument that's trying to be two things. It's trying to be life insurance and be a savings account. And what you really need to do is just get the best life insurance and go somewhere else and get the best savings account because whole life insurance tends to not really be the best at either one. It's just a hybrid. And so you don't need your life insurance to be a bank account. You don't need it to be savings for you. Go do that in an actual bank account. Um, look at term life insurance instead. You will get better rates. Yeah, it's it's so much more inexpensive. My husband's parents had gotten him a whole life insurance, which he had when we got married. And we met with um, an insurance advisor. And he said, you know, you're a young couple. This is silly. You need to get a term life insurance policy. And we've always had enough so that we can so that I can continue to not work. Even even though our children are almost grown because of my health issues, it's just not realistic that I would be able to go out and work. And, you know, even even maybe you are 
are both working, but you still want to have have life insurance and um, sufficient amount. You may think that we're both healthy, nothing's going to happen. You know what? Car accidents happen. Uh, that cancer comes along, and you know, I I know someone that um, her husband died very young, and she had two young children. And she was so grateful for the life insurance because she was able to continue to stay home and raise her children. So these are, it's, it's called insurance for a reason. We don't plan that one of us is going to die early, but these things do happen. I want to talk about some not so great financial um, opportunities and decisions out there. And I know we're going to step on some toes with this first one, but I think it's really important that we discuss it. And we're, we've had actually several people that have asked us to talk about this. We're going to talk about MLMs, multi-level marketing. Angela, I want you to talk about why multi-level marketing is almost always a bad idea. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm sure I'm going to step on some toes, but um, the difficulty with multi-level marketing is that um, very often the real income to the consultant is coming through signing up more consultants rather than selling product. That doesn't mean that you cannot make income from selling product, but it means that the real income um, to be very successful is coming from your downline. And... Um, the the best way to describe why this is an issue is really to just tell the statistic that very, very few people who enter into a multi-level marketing company end up making money. Most, it's, it's above 90%, it's something like 93%, um, either barely break even or end up losing money. And this could be because your company requires you to keep a certain amount of stock, uh, on hand of your product. It could be for a lot of different reasons, but the majority of people do not make money. Um, and now I know that a lot of people will say, oh, well, that's okay. I'm not trying to make money. I just want the discount. Well, the difficulty for me then is that you're participating in a system where there are a lot of people who really do join because they are hoping to make a lot of money and they they are hoping that if I just work the system, it will work for me. So let me explain mathematically why very often this cannot work out to be the case, even if you work very hard at it. Um, the reason is because um, multi-level marketing is not a superior product distribution chain. It's not a superior distribution of product into the market. Um, a, a, um, a free market has supply and demand, and they meet to form a market clearing price. But in a multi-level marketing environment, what is going on is that supply is artificially flooded because the consultants are actually financially incentivized to hire more consultants, which means more supply. If you want to think about this in just practical terms, if I wake up tomorrow and decide that I want um, Mary Kay, 
I will have no trouble finding a consultant. There are many, many, many consultants. And and we can all think about, you know, different multi-level marketing companies as they have come and gone. Each one, when it's in its heyday, I think of, you know, the leggings one, LuLaRoe. Um, when that was very, very popular, you you everyone is a LuLaRoe consultant. Supply is completely flooded. You have no trouble finding um, the product. But demand... Changing supply does nothing to create demand. Demand is what it is on its own. And what that means is that any given price, the number of people who demand the product, it's based on people demanding the product. It's not based on whether or not it's available. So what happens is, putting this in practical terms, when a consultant signs up for a multi-level marketing company, No one is telling you, here is your area, and no one else can compete with you. In fact, you are competing with all the other consultants, and it's unlimited how many consultants there will be. And oh, by the way, you're financially incentivized to add consultants to your competition. All the while, the demand for the product is not growing because supply is not what drives demand. They're independent of one another. Um, And so... Ultimately, it's high competition for sales, and many, many, many of these products are not superior products. There are probably some exceptions, but when it's an inferior product and there is um, what in economics we call it a reasonable substitute, if a reasonable substitute is easily available, um, think about how many multi-level marketing products I can go down to Target or Walmart and buy something reasonably similar for a much cheaper price. Um, think about uh, things like essential oils. Um, I do use some essential oils, but I have a preferred company that's not a multi-level marketing company, and the oils that I buy cost about half. And it's in reality, the re- research shows that it's not really because the multi-level marketing product is a higher quality. It's the same quality. Sometimes it's poorer quality, depending on what the product is. So um, this is my uh, business analysis of multi-level marketing companies. Very, very few will come out making a lot of money. Very, very few will come out making a living at it. Many will work very hard and either break even or lose money. Um, And, you know, the last thing that I'll just add on to this discussion of multi-level marketing is just to say that... um, My opinion that I just gave is my business opinion, and I do understand that there are ladies out there who do multi-level marketing because they enjoy it, they like the product, um, it is adding a little bit of income to their family, and or they want the discount, and and that is fine. And um, I, I don't want my comments to be taken as criticizing, but I will say for people who are considering getting into multi-level marketing, do a little reading, um that is written by people with um, with business training and business education and and read some read some analysis that is critical and um, just take that into account. Consider the risk that you you may not do any better than just breaking even and spending a lot of time. You can go on YouTube and look up why I left and put in almost any multi-level marketing and hear the stories of people that left 
various multi-level marketing. And, you know, before you signed up, read those stories. At least understand what you're getting into. I know everybody knows somebody that's making $10,000 a month selling essential oils or Lululu. Um, But there is lots of girls that signed up selling Lululu and thought they were going to make tons of money and now are in the hole with tons and tons of product that they can't sell. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a lot of people lost thousands. I I understand the buy-in to that one was at least $5,000. And I, I will say um, there is a great documentary. I cannot remember right now if it was on Netflix or Amazon Prime, but there is a great documentary called Betting on Zero. And it does a good job of going into um, some of the ethical concerns Um behind how MLMs run and how they ultimately um, often end up taking advantage of individuals. Um, you know, I we've talked about LuLaRoe several times. Um, think about every consultant who was in LuLaRoe and bought in for $5,000 and lost their $5,000. The $5,000 went somewhere. Um, someone, someone got the $5,000. And so um, there are certainly ethical concerns. So have a look at it before you get into it. Really know what you're getting into before you um, commit yourself and your money. So I'm going to say just a quick thing about credit cards because I know we discussed them earlier. And, you know, um, both Angela and I, we have credit cards, but we never carry a balance on them. And I think a lot of people get credit cards and they think, oh, I'm just going to get the credit cards to pay this or buy a new couch or whatever, Mm -hmm. and we're going to pay it off right away. And a lot of times that's how debt starts. Mm -hmm. And unless you're getting a credit, credit card to get miles or points, you know, uh, you know, there's all different kinds, you can get money back, we have a Costco card, and we get, we have a Costco credit card, and we put stuff on there, and we get uh, money back, but we pay it off every single month, unless you know for sure that you are going to be able to pay it off every single month, it is better not to have them. I really feel strongly about that. And I absolutely agree. You absolutely can live this life without having a credit card. Um, it, it is um, a tool. It is not um, a way to buy things that you don't really have the money for. It is not a way to help you live um, a life that you don't have the money for. You, you really, as we start out the show talking about, um, you, your goal really ought to be making wise financial decisions and living within your means. And a credit card can help you do that. It can help you uh, get cash back. It can help um, uh, you have access to purchases um, that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. For example, purchasing online. Obviously, it's much uh, simpler with a credit card. You can always use your debit card um, if you if you can't handle having the credit card. Um, but I I strongly agree with Colleen um, to always pay off that credit card every single month. And I am going to throw in one little bit uh, tip on credit cards. Um, if you do decide for your family that you are going to have credit cards and you can be wise and disciplined with them, um, I do like to give the advice to have one in, uh, this is for married couples, um, obviously singles, your credit card is going to be in your name, but for married couples, I do um, like to give the advice, have one credit card in husband's name and one credit card in the wife's name because credit cards do build and affect your FICO score. 
And you do sort of want to keep your credit score in mind so that you have good credit available in the event of something catastrophic happening if you um, should need that credit, you know, if if your husband dies and um, you need to move and buy a house. You need a good credit score. And so having a credit card in each of your name and using it and paying it off is something that can help with that. But I temper that advice with saying, do it if you can be disciplined, if you are um, making wise choices and living within your means and paying that credit card off. So um, we already talked about buying too much house. That is definitely a bad financial decision. I want to talk about buying cars real quick. Um, I personally think that it's better not to buy a brand new car. I'll tell you that we have bought our last three cars at the auction. And I know that sounds funny, but we can even buy cars that are only six months old at the auction. So as soon as you drive a car off of a lot, it is going to lose a lot of its value. So sometimes if you want to buy a newer car, you can get one that's six months old and spend a lot less. And maybe you just have a lot of money and you can afford a brand new car and that's your dream. And I'm not going to say that that's wrong. But I think that um, for us, we've just decided not to buy brand new cars. They aren't investments. Uh, they are going to go down in value and there are ways that you can spend less. We bought 12 years ago, we bought a Chevy Suburban at an auction for much less than it was worth. And we drove it for 10 years with no problems with it. And when I say we go to the auction, we actually go with our mechanic and we're, we can drive the cars ahead of time and stuff. That's just what we've chosen to do. Uh, but there are you, you want to be careful because sometimes people are car poor. Mm. And you want to talk about how cars aren't investments? Absolutely. Yeah. Just as you said, a car is going to decrease in value. Um, the first hit that it takes, just like you said, is driving off the lot, that depreciation. Because as soon as you drive off the lot, it's not new anymore. And usually that's several thousand dollars. Um, and nothing really changed about the car. Um, but it's instantaneously worth less. So that right there is a good reason to buy used. Um, Now, I will say there might be some unusual instances where a new car could be a good choice, Um, but very often the used car is the better idea. Now, I love your advice about going to the auction. I'm actually intrigued myself. I haven't been to a car auction before, and now I kind of want to (laughs) go. Um, yeah, because sometimes it's cars that have been repossessed yeah. that people only drove six months, yeah. you know? I mean, uh, but I I think probably many of our listeners know someone whose car is amazing and their house is terrible or, you know, and there may be lots of reasons for that. But if you are making a choice between stretching yourself on the cost of your house or stretching yourself on the cost of your car, your car is going to last for 10 years and then it's going to be junk. Your house think about the length of your mortgage. It's 30 years. The house is supposed to be standing 30 years from now, hopefully far, far, far longer from now. And it's supposed to go up in value. That's what you want to think about is an appreciable asset, which a car is not. So never, ever think of, oh, I'm buying this car and it's an investment. It is not. So I'm just going to say real quickly, I think you know from everything Angela said that there is wisdom in starting to save for retirement. If you're 22, start now. (laughs) You might think, oh, that's a far, it's a long way away. I'm going to tell you that you are going to be older before you know it. Um, I still can't believe I'm as old as I am. So start 
don't be foolish and and think that you don't need to save for retirement. I'm only going to say something very quickly about giving, and maybe we'll talk about this another time. We do know from Scripture that we are to give, and that we are to give to our local church. And so that needs to be in your budget. I'm not going to talk real in-depth about that. I wanted to talk just real quickly about teaching children to be wise with their money. There's different views on this, and there's no right view. The way that we did it is... First of all, there were things that the children were expected to do because they're part of the family. And although we did offer other chores, which you probably could put that into that category too, but we wanted to be able to give our children money for some things so that they could learn to be wise with it. And they each had three jars. They had a giving jar, they had a savings jar, they had a spending jar. And so this was kind of just building an early foundation for... um being wise with money, you know, maybe when they're five years old, they got $2 or something like that. And, and we had different things that they earned money for. We actually penalized our children too, if they didn't do what they were supposed to. So sometimes they would get a little less, but you'll, there are some different books out there and there's different ways that you can work that out and maybe talk to some older moms and find out how they did it. That's what I would say about that. I will tell you teenagers. Um, that's really the, the big thing where we had to work with our children. And what we did is when our children got their first job, we would buy them YNAB because it does cost a little bit of money, as Angela said earlier, but it is worth it. So YNAB is you need a budget. We bought them YNAB. My husband would have a weekly business meeting with them. So when they would get their paycheck, he would help them put each dollar into a category. He would help them set goals for savings. So if my son Ian wanted to buy a new guitar and he knew how much he needed to save, he'd put a little bit from each paycheck. Right now he's saving for a car. And so uh, these are different things that you can do with teaching your children to be wise with with um, their spending and even when they get their first job, see if they they have a 401k they can start contributing to. It's never too early to contribute to things like that. I absolutely agree with all of that. I think that's great advice. So I know that this was not a theological topic, but so many different things that we discussed today have come up in the group. So we knew it was something we should address. I do want to tell you, we have some really exciting episodes coming up. And remember, no controversy here on Theology Gals. <laughs> um, but we're, we're going to be talking about celebrity pastors with just an amazing guest I can't um, say enough about. Perfect guest for the topic. But we are working right now, we are going to be doing an episode on mops, mothers of preschoolers. And the reason is, is periodically someone writes us or asks in the group, what do you guys think of mops? Well, one of the gals in our group did so much research and just wonderful research. And we're going to talk about mops and we do have some concerns with it. So that'll be coming up also. And then I mentioned before, we'll be talking about being single because I know that's something that a lot of people have requested. And we're working on many other topics. If you have anything you'd like us to discuss, please email us at theologygals at gmail.com or reach out to us on Facebook or in the Facebook group. So we hope that you learned something on this episode and we'll see you next week.